after two days spent hopping from airfield to airfield, attempting to elude Japanese air attacks, and even spending a night under the wing of his plane, Second Lieutenant Donald Robbins co-piloted a B-17 Flying Fortress bomber onto the airstrip of the bombed-out Clark Field on the morning of Wednesday, December 10, 1941. They were there for fuel and bombs. 25-year-old Lieutenant Robbins had a round face and a contagious smile that crinkled his eyes and gave him a joyful, slightly elvish look. Two years earlier, he had been working as a butcher and living at his parents' rural Washington State home. Now he was a trained pilot and a veteran of this two-day-old war. The bomber's crew was in the middle of loading their plane when an air raid warning sounded. Japanese Zeros were almost on Clark Field for another round of attacks. It was 9.35 a.m. Lieutenant Robbins started all four engines, and the crew hightailed it to their B-17 stations. The pilot, bombardier, and navigator climbing a ladder into the plane's front. The gunners and radio man swinging themselves through the small door in the plane's middle. The aircraft rumbled and shook as it taxied, engaged, and then cleared the field safely. The fortress climbed in altitude to escape the Japanese gunfire. Captain Colin Kelly then turned the plane north over Luzon, the Philippines' largest island, and radioed his eight-man crew. All right, boys, what have we got? We only had time to load three bombs, Captain, but they're big babies. His bombardier replied. Copy that. Captain Kelly was a young but accomplished man. Just 26 years old, he was already an experienced pilot, deputy squadron leader, a husband, and a father to a 19-month-old son. The handsome man with dark hair and a thoughtful smile was calm and deliberate, and he never, ever swore. Kelly radioed his crew the details of their flight, talking over the sounds of the motors and rushing wind. There's a Japanese aircraft carrier believed to be off of northern Luzon. Our mission is to get that ship. Other B-17 should join us soon. Captain Kelly and Lieutenant Don Robbins piloted their fortress steadily north, eventually leaving Luzon Island and flying over the South China Sea. Noticing they were still a single plane without backup, Robbins radioed Kelly. Where are those other B-17s, Captain? Must have received last-minute orders. Guess it's us alone, Robbins. Sir, I see two Japanese ships below. Neither are aircraft carriers. Just Japanese transport ships. Not our orders. Not worth our bombs, Robbins. Scanning the waters below, none of the crew saw signs of the reported Japanese carrier. Captain Kelly turned the B-17 around, heading south again toward Luzon Island. The eagle-eyed bombardier saw something as they approached the island's northern shore. Captain, Japanese craft below, moving slowly and parallel with the coastline. Looking down, Robin saw the slow-moving convoy as well. Now that's what I want to see, exclaimed Robbins. Three Jap transports, three destroyers, and one big fat son of a... Sorry, Cap. Robbins caught himself, grinning impishly at Kelly's side eye. The navigator interrupted. Three pursuit planes, Captain. In response, Kelly climbed the fortress to 20,000 feet, shaking off the Japanese pursuit planes who couldn't fly that high. The sky was clear, the field open, a perfect bombing day. The navigator handed a pair of binoculars to Kelly, saying, I think that big one is a battleship, Captain. Kelly agreed and passed the glasses to Robbins for a look. That juicy plum couldn't be anything but a battleship, Cap. From their safe altitude of 20,000 feet, Kelly took two passes over the ship while the bombardier set up for the drop. The bomb doors opened on the plane's underbelly, directly behind the flight deck and right in the middle of the aircraft. 
On the plane's third pass over the convoy, the bombardier dropped the plane's three 600-pound demolition bombs in a rapid train. A near miss. A direct midship hit. A near miss at portside. Rubbins cheered into the radio. Boy, you sure tagged it. Bombardiers don't come any better than you. Below them, the large Japanese ship was burning fiercely. Clouds of smoke rose from the impact site. The ship started weaving and heading towards shore, leaving an oil trail behind it. Highly satisfied with their bombing run, Kelly turned the plane back to Clark Field while dropping to 10,000 feet. Radio Clark Field with a report and for instructions, Kelly ordered his radio operator. It was an ill-timed order. As the radio operator turned from his battle position, two or three Japanese Zeros, one piloted by ace flyer Saburo Sakai, emerged from a low bank of clouds under Kelly's fortress. Sakai was part of the Japanese force that had destroyed Clark Field just two days previous. The Zero's attack was immediate. Machine guns and cannon fire set the B-17 flying fortress on fire. Kelly hollered over his radio to the machine gunners in the plane's waist and tail. Battle stations! Fire! Fire! Beat them off! Japanese attacks hit the fortress's radio compartment and the oxygen supply blew up. Kelly dove the plane into clouds, trying to lose the Zeros. There's a bonfire on our left wing! Damn, Cap, we're burning like a holocaust! Co-pilot Robbins yelled while Kelly continued to call for the machine gunners to down the Japanese craft. Bail! Bail! Kelly ordered his crew as he and Robbins attempted to keep the plane steady, straight, and level, even though fire had reached the flight deck. The rear machine gunners and radio operator got out first, abandoning their guns and jumping into the clear Philippine sky, parachutes trapped to their backs. The bombardier and navigator left through the frontal escape. Sakai and his counterparts strafed the parachutists, but they all landed safely. As the crew cleared, the flying fortress spun out of control, throwing Kelly and Robbins against the cabin wall. Well, hell, this is it, Lieutenant Robbins thought as he tried to reach the overhead cockpit escape hatch, but he couldn't move. And then the B-17 flying fortress exploded in a blinding blast. This is Left Behind. Behind, a podcast about the people left behind when the United States surrendered the Philippines in the early days of World War II. I'm Anastasia Harmon, and I tell you the stories of World War II servicemen and women, civilians, guerrillas, and others captured by Japanese forces in the Philippines. My great-grandfather Alma Sam was one of those POWs, and his memoir inspired me to tell the stories of his fellow captives. This week's story is about 2nd Lieutenant Donald Donham Robbins, Don for short. Don was co-pilot for Colin Kelly when World War II broke out. Kelly is a fairly famous World War II figure. He became a household name across the United States in the early days of the war. I'll talk a bit about him in this episode, but since there's so much, even a Wikipedia page already written about him, I'll let you look up more details if you're interested. Don Robbins, however, isn't as well known, but his story is fascinating. So let's jump into the life and times of 2nd Lieutenant Don Robbins. To start with, we don't know exactly when Don Robbins was born or where he was born. None of the records I've discovered for him have his exact birth date or birthplace, and that is kind of strange. At best, I can narrow it down to April or May 1916 in Oregon or Southern Washington State. And those details are kind of important because Don was adopted. 
I know this because the 1920 census states that a three-year-old Don is the adopted son of Robert and Anna Robbins. As best I can tell, Anna Robbins' younger sister is likely Don's biological mother. And there's a full explanation about why I think this. You can find it in Don's timeline on my website if you're interested. The link is in the show description. So Don Robbins was raised by his parents Anna and Robert Robbins in the southwest Washington town of Woodland. He came to the Robbins family when they were older than traditional parents. When Don was three, Robert was 51 and Anna was 42. Robert Robbins recalled that Don was into aviation from the time he was a child. Don has been crazy about planes ever since he started school. I remember him watching them pass over the house when he was a small boy. In his adolescent years, Don loved attending the traveling barnstorming shows that came near his home. Popular in the 1920s, barnstorming air shows traveled the United States with individual and group trip pilots performing stunts and taking people on airplane rides. Pilots all liked to take Don up because he loved it. Interesting side note, my great-grandma told a story of being taken up in one of these airplanes in her 20s and the pilot making her sick by doing a loop-de-loop. She was not impressed. But I bet Don would have been. During his teenage years, Don's family ran a confectionery store and boarding house from their home. He played football for a bit in high school, but eventually quit to spend time working on model airplanes, according to his father. After high school, Don spent two years at the University of Washington in Seattle, then dropped out to join the U.S. Army as an aviator. He attended the Army Aircraft School at Santa Maria, California, and then went to Randolph Field in Texas, sometimes called the West Point of the Air. His training completed, the new pilot came home to visit his proud mom and dad. There's a picture on my website of him during this visit. He's young, excited, proud, and ready to take on the world. And that would come very soon for the young pilot. In summer 1941, the U.S. Army Air Force had a fleet of about 200 shiny new bombers, the Boeing B-17 Flying Fortress. The B-17 was a heavy bomber with four engines. It could deliver the largest payload of bombs from a very high altitude and had the longest flight range of other bombers. But none of these B-17s were in the Philippines, which was the United States' stronghold in the Pacific against potential threats from Japan. And the United States naturally wanted some of their new heavy bombers in the Philippines. But there was a problem. The B-17 had a flight distance of roughly 2,000 miles. The Philippines was some 7,000 miles from San Francisco, California, where the fleet of Pacific-bound bombers was parked. Now, smaller planes would often be dismantled, put into crates, and shipped on ships to distant island bases. But the B-17 was too big and too complex for the relatively small island bases to reassemble. So the United States Army Air Force, there wasn't a separate air force in those pre-World War II days, came up with an air ferry plan. Basically, pilots would leapfrog the planes from island to island and eventually get to the Philippines. But only certain island bases could be used. The runways had to be big enough to handle the fortress planes. The bases had to have the right kind of fuel, and the flight paths had to stay away from enemy, that is, Japan, holdings. The first jump was San Francisco to Hawaii, and the planes had just enough fuel to make the 2,400-mile trip. On September 5, 1941, Lieutenant Robbins jumped into the co-pilot seat of a B-17 Flying Fortress being piloted by Colin Kelly. Other members of the 14th Bombardment Squadron got into eight additional B-17s. It was an unexpected trip and new transfer for Kelly, and Don Robbins recalled, I flew with Kelly from Hawaii, and even with only one day's notice concerning his unexpected transfer to the Philippines, he didn't seem to mind. 
their first lake was Oahu to Midway Island, about 1,100 miles away. After resting and refueling, they flew from Midway to Wake Island, about 1,000 miles away, and landed on a crushed coral airstrip that had been completed only the month before. The next leg was treacherous, 2,400 miles to Port Moresby in New Guinea, and they would have to fly over Japanese-held islands. The U.S. had little to no intelligence about the presence of enemy fighter planes or warships in these areas. To be safe, Kelly, Robbins, and the other B-17 pilots flew the route at night, at the high altitude of 26,000 feet, and with all lights off. Now let's talk a bit about the B-17. It's called the Flying Fortress because it's big and it holds a lot of bombs. And it's a cool plane, but it was built to get a job done and not built for comfort. For those of us familiar with pressurized commercial flights, well, push that out of your minds. The interior of the B-17 is circular metal ribs covered with sheet metal. It's strong metal, but it's just metal between you and open air, especially in the waste, what we'd probably call the fuselage today. The flight deck where Robbins and Kelly were had a little more structure. At a 26,000-foot cruising altitude, the air temperature over the Pacific was around 28 degrees Fahrenheit in early September. That's in contrast to the mid-80 temp and humidity on the ground. Robbins and Kelly had to use oxygen masks the entire eight or more hour flight because the bomber was not pressurized. Heck, it was barely even sealed. There were portions of the plane open to the air. The machine gunner windows in the waist, for example, were just open air holes in those early days of the war. So on top of those below freezing temps, they probably had a lot of wind to deal with. Although up in the flight deck, I don't think there was as much wind as in the plane's waist. Robbins and Kelly may have worn electric suits to help stay warm, but the suits weren't standard in B-17s until two years later in 1943, as far as I can find, so I'm not certain about that. Between the plane's motors and the wind, you couldn't hear the person next to you unless you were both using a radio headset. They had to maintain radio silence during this leg of the air ferry, and I'm not certain if that included the person-to-person -person radio within the plane, as well as the ship-to-shore radio. If it did include person-to-person -person radio, then communication between pilot and co-pilot would have been very difficult. I know most of these details firsthand because in May 2022, I flew in a B-17. It was a cool and eye-opening experience. I'll put some pics and video on the website. I flew in the B-17 Sentimental Journey with the Commemorative Air Force. They are the same group that owned the planes that crashed at the Dallas Air Show in November 2022. It was a different B-17, however, that crashed, but I've wondered if some of the same pilots or crew members on that plane had flown with me a few months before. Needless to say, Kelly and Robbins and the other B-17 pilots who were part of the big air ferry had a long, cold, windy, dark, noisy flight high above enemy holdings. But they avoided interaction with the Japanese and arrived safely at Port Moresby, New Guinea, where they were rewarded with a day-long rest. From Port Moresby, they flew 900 miles to Darwin, Australia. Then, the final leg was some 2,000 miles from Darwin to the Philippines. After a seven-day journey, Kelly and Robbins and the other eight B-17s arrived safely in the Philippines on September 12, 1941. Lieutenant Robbins, Captain Kelly, and all the other pilots of the other eight air ferry planes received the Distinguished Flying Cross for this flight. This medal is given to pilots who have extraordinary achievement while involved with a flight. 
I don't know what Robbins and the rest of the 14th Bombardment Squadron did in the Philippines from September until war broke out on December 8, 1941. Probably training missions and similar activities in the ramp-up period before the war actually started. Clark Field, about 90 minutes north of Manila, was the primary base for the Philippine B-17 bombers, which increased from the initial 9 to 35 total by early December 1941. 17 of those 35 fortresses were uncamouflaged and on the ground when the Japanese bombed Clark Field on December 8, 1941. 12 were destroyed, 4 were damaged, and 1 escape damage. Two more B-17s were on reconnaissance missions during the bombing and escape damage. Now, I don't know if Kelly and Robin's B-17 was at Clark Field on the morning of December 8th, or flying reconnaissance, or at a different airfield altogether. I do know that Kelly, Robbins, and the rest of their eight-man crew spent the next two days jumping from airfield to airfield around Luzon, trying to keep away from Japanese bombers. They even slept under their fortress's wing one night. They returned to Clark Field on December 10th, refueled, loaded some bombs, and headed north in search of a Japanese aircraft carrier. And that's when they found and attacked what they thought was a Japanese battleship, as reported on back in the States by CBS. The bulletin has just come in, datelined Manila. An Army communique today said that Army bombers had scored three direct hits on a Japanese battleship of the Hiranuma class, the 29,000-ton class, at a point 10 miles northeast of northern Luzon. A fire was started on the ship, says the bulletin. Two bombs dropped close alongside the ship. The battleship was said to be blazing fiercely when the bomber left the scene. It's now about 2 o'clock on Thursday afternoon in Manila. As they left the burning ship, Robbins and Kelly's B-17 was attacked by three Japanese pursuit planes. The fortress caught fire. Kelly ordered his crew to evacuate as he and Robbins attempted to keep the bomber steady, straight, and level. But the fire had reached the cockpit, and Kelly ordered Robbins to bail from the flight deck's escape hatch. However, the plane started spinning out of control, and Robbins couldn't move to reach the escape hatch. And he thought, Well, hell, I guess this is it. And then the flying fortress exploded. The force pushed Robbins out the escape hatch he'd been trying to reach. He later described riding on a cloud, half out of this world, his thoughts jumbled. But somehow, despite his haze and the continued strafing from zeros, he engaged his chute and landed safely. A crew member later recalled, the Lord had Robbins by the hand and pulled him out of that plane. Moments later, Kelly's B-17 hit the ground about three miles east of Clark Field. The impact scattered parts over a 500-yard area. Safely on the ground, Robbins headed for the crash site. The wreckage still burned as the Clarkfield search party arrived to find the plane's tail completely missing. A rear machine gunner's body lay 50 yards from the wreck. He'd been killed in air by Japanese bullets that pierced the plane's waist. The body of 26-year-old Captain Colin Kelly was next to the wreckage. His parachute was still unopened. Kelly's actions on December 10, 1941, just two days into World War II, made him the first widely celebrated American hero of the war. His B-17 was the first U.S. flying fortress shot down during World War II. Newspaper accounts across the United States touted his heroics and included Robin's own account of the flight and crash. I believe I was thrown out of the plane by an explosion, certainly through no volition of my own. Kelly was a fighter to the last. As usual, he didn't swear, even though he was in a plenty tough spot. He was a real man, acted always calmly and deliberately, and I'm convinced died with a smile of satisfaction on his lips because he knew the battleship Haruna never survived those three wounds 
Local reporters rushed to Don Robbins' parents' grocery store in Woodland, Washington to get their take on their son's involvement in the heroic flight. Robert Robbins stood behind the store's counter and told a reporter, Boy, are we proud. I knew Don would show those Japs a few things, and I'm doubly proud that he rode the last flight with Captain Kelly. Don's equally proud mother, Anna, started a scrapbook of newspaper clippings that included her son's words and pictures. As it turned out, however, the supposed battleship that Kelly and crew sunk was the large cruiser Natori. As a cruiser, it would have been heavily armored, but not as heavily armed with weapons and ammunition as a battleship, and therefore would have been a less important target or strike. Kelly and Robin's bombs caused quite heavy damage to the ship, but didn't sink it. Now a pilot without a plane, Lieutenant Robbins joined the Army's ground forces. In late December 1941, he retreated to Bataan Peninsula with the majority of American and Filipino servicemen. In January 1942, Robbins was part of an air warning detachment high in the mountains of Bataan. A reporter searching for Robbins, to get the pilot's first-hand account of the B-17 crash, couldn't find the lieutenant because He was heading a party searching for a Japanese plane which crashed in the jungles nearby. But Bataan fell in early April 1942, and Robbins joined the nearly 80,000 Filipino and American troops captured by Japanese forces. He survived the infamous Bataan Death March and eventually ended up in the Cabana Tuan POW camp, the largest Japanese POW camp during World War II. Lieutenant Robbins shared camp barracks with my great-grandfather, Alma Sam, to whom Don recounted his story of flying with Colin Kelly. Robbins remained at Cabanatuan for two years and three months until Japanese officials transferred him to Manila to be transported to work camps on Japan's mainland. On October 11, 1944, Lieutenant Robbins was loaded onto the Japanese transport ship Arisan Maru with 1,782 other American POWs. The POWs had little water and almost no food while enduring 120 degree internal temperatures. After the POWs were loaded, the Arisan Maru and the POWs packed on board had to wait nearly 10 days off the coast of a Philippine island, basically hiding from American airstrikes on Manila. The ship eventually sailed as part of a larger convoy for Formosa, that's present-day Taiwan, on October 21st. But the Arisan Maru was unmarked, meaning American ships had no way of knowing the enemy ship contained precious American POW cargo. The American submarine USS Shark torpedoed the Arisan Maru around 5 p.m. on October 24, 1944. Most of the POWs escaped the ship's holds, only to drown or worse. Some POWs made it to other ships in the convoy, only to be beaten away by Japanese sailors with poles. Only nine of the 1,782 POWs survived. It is the greatest loss of life in a single U.S. military sinking. 28-year-old Lieutenant Donald Donham Robbins was not one of the survivors. His body was declared non-recoverable. His name is on the tablets of the missing at Manila American Cemetery in the Philippines. In response to the torpedoing, Japanese ships accompanying the Arisan Maru dropped depth charges, basically underwater bombs, at the attacking submarine. The shark was destroyed and all 87 Americans on board were killed. I toured a World War II-era submarine when I visited Pearl Harbor a few years ago, and I can't imagine anything worse than being trapped in a sinking submarine. Just touring the submarine that was anchored above water in a harbor triggered my claustrophobia. 
Captain Colin Kelly instantly became a national hero after his death was widely reported throughout the United States. He left behind a young wife and infant son, Colin Kelly III. President Franklin D. Roosevelt wrote a future dated letter addressed, quote, to the President of the United States of America in 1956. The letter asked for that president to appoint Kelly's infant son to West Point, which was Captain Kelly's alma mater. Colin Kelly III did eventually attend West Point, but got in on his own merit. Colin Kelly Middle School in Eugene, Oregon was named after Captain Kelly in 1946. The school's first students decided on the school's name, and they wanted an ordinary Joe as the namesake rather than a prestigious military or political figure. The school's colors are Kelly Green and White, and their nickname is The Pilots. The late Colin Powell adopted the pronunciation of his name as Colin after hearing how Colin Kelly's name was pronounced. His parents received word of his death by telegram in June 1945, about eight months after Don's death. Earlier in the war, his father Robert told reporters, Don hasn't any girl, unless there's a lady up there in the clouds. And if there is, I guess he's been courting her for a long time. As a single man, Don Robbins didn't have any children to carry on his name or his memory. Remembering these POWs is obviously something that is important to me. It's a big part of why I created this podcast, so that we can all remember. Telling the stories of POWs who die is emotional for me, but this story is especially so. I can hardly keep from crying as I talk about the two young, heroic men who gave all for their country. And you have no idea how much I've edited out so that I don't cry in the podcast. Robbins and Kelly's actions on December 10th, 1941, just two days into World War II, earned both men fame that lasted well beyond the war. But the war was just starting when Japanese pilots shot down their B-17. Later that same day, Japanese bombers and planes would turn their sights away from airfields and hone in on a new target, the American Navy. More on that next week. This is Left Behind. Thanks for listening. You can find pictures and maps of Lieutenant Don Robbins and Captain Colin Kelly and their stories on my website. The link is in the show description. You'll also find a list of sources I used and that write-up of Don's potential parentage. If you enjoy this podcast, please tell a friend. Helping others find this podcast lets me continue sharing these amazing stories. Left Behind is researched, written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Anastasia Harmon. Tyler Harmon and Mike Davis provide voiceovers. Reenactments are based on historical research, although some creative liberty is taken with dialogue. I'll be back next week with a daring escape from a raging inferno. (laughs) 